this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolanda, and as always, we're talking about what we're preaching, what's astonishing us, and what we're thinking. Although, see what I did there? See, see what I just did? I just mixed oh, yeah. it up. I yes. mixed it up. See? We, are, we said we were going to wing it, do something different today. He said we were going to wing it. It's not newsworthy if I say <laughs> I'm going to wing it, but when you say that, that is um, astonishing. So what are you preaching this week? Oh, okay. I well, you meant it. All right. So we were specifically told way, way back in the beginning of this podcast, remember? I um, know, by Tom Bandy. Who, who listened to it and was like, because when we originally started this, we started with preaching and then thinking and astonished. And he was like, why would you start with your preaching? No one, no cares, one cares what you're preaching about. <laughs> start with astonishing. Um but it's fine. I will, whatever. We're just going to mix it up today. Um, we at The Grove are in a worship series on our core values. Um, and I, in January, um, some some really wise friends um, introduced me to the concept of like, hey, January is a restock year. Like people are resetting and just sort of thinking about um, what what their life looks like. And there's some good... Um, and there's real goodness in that, um, the deeper, the deeper issues. And so it makes sense as a congregation in January to really be intentional about saying, Hey, who, who are we called and created to be? And can we name, um, what, what we want to be most intentional about as a community? So oftentimes in January, we'll look at our, mission statement or we'll look at um, we have guiding principles which are really um, I, I mean it sounds like jargon but they're actually incredibly incredibly helpful um, and and then we also have core values which again you know to me sounds like something that you would have at Dunder Mifflin right <laughs> like it just sounds like corporate <laughs> you know gobbledygook um, but when you have core values and they are authentic, it really is helpful in difficult decisions to be able to turn to them and say, well, you know, this, this might seem unlikely or this might cause controversy, but if it's in line with our core values, you know, maybe we do it anyway. And so anyway, um, so our core values at The Grove are uh, welcoming risk opportunity, diversity, and love. Um, and our word of the year is reconciliation. Um, and so this week we are doing um, the core value of diversity. And the text is um, from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is teaching in a room and his mother and brothers come to the house and they can't get in and somebody passes him a message and says, Hey, your mothers and your mother and brothers are outside. Like your family's here. And he says, um, something that is gasp worthy today, but I don't think it's easy for us to really even comprehend the level of, um, offense and just like the, you know, the record, what do you call that? Like the record skid, the record break, like when you Skip. Uh, skip. Well, or when you like yank the needle off and it makes that screeching sound oh, like yeah. that. Um, I mean, it just, it, it was an incredibly um, unlikely and offensive and jarring thing for Jesus to say. 
they brought him a message and said, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And he said, who are my mother and brothers? They're like, yeah, the people standing outside are your, your mother and brothers. And he said, no, my mother and brothers are those who do the will of God. And so in that moment, Jesus is radically redefining what family is. And I think um, that's an incredibly that's an incredibly significant thing if we took Jesus seriously. Um, I, I was at a funeral service recently as a worshiper, and the officiant was talking about how life is about um, family, faith, and culture. And I think the reality is for a lot of people, like family first is a thing that you hear people say, like God, family, country, that's like the marine core unit what I mean we have this idea we we really fetishize and celebrate people who um say I'm going to put my family before all else um that that's um laudable in our culture um and and certainly was in Jesus's culture you know this sort of tribe clan centric idea of 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 um belonging and Jesus just shatters that um, and I think f- for us, I-, I think we, we've just shaved the rough edges off the gospel. We've, we've smoothed out the stumbling block and made Christianity fit seamlessly into an American empire that says, look out for number one, look out for your own. You're not your brother's keeper. And, um, you know, I- instead of recovering, the radical truth of the gospel, which is Jesus's healing and restoring the fabric of the human family. And that in Christ, we don't lose our biological families. Although sometimes Jesus is very clear about saying like, yeah, my word divides, it divides, you know, mother against daughter, father against son. Um, But we don't have to lose our biological family, but we have to understand that it's radically larger. Um, And I think, you know, part of the reason that I know that America is not a Christian nation is that anyone who believed the message of Jesus wholeheartedly never could have accepted chattel slavery or Jim Crow because they, they would have said, Hey, these are, this is my family. You, I can't allow this to be done to my family. And the fact that America so seamlessly integrated those brutal, destructive practices of othering into the religion, you know, cultural religion, secular religion shows me that that secular religion is, might be in Jesus's name, but it is not following Jesus. And so I really um, am excited to really, put that in front of the congregation and just let it be uncomfortable. And then from that say, what does it mean then that we have a core value of diversity that we're saying we want in this house, if it's God's house to meet our brothers and sisters who we would not meet, but Jesus that we would not recognize as our kin, not like, okay, it's family. And then it's my church family, but to say, no, the, the folks that we know in this place belong to us as much as our families of origin um, and just all the messiness of that. And I think it's, it's incredibly challenging because it means um, 
you know, we have to really wrestle with the inequities that exist within our communities. Um, and also, um, it, it helps us understand how we have to deal with with conflict and discomfort at, to be able to say, hey, this is this is family and growing and learning, forgiving and seeking reconciliation. That's that's something that healthy families do. So, yeah, that's good. One of the things I'm reminded of as you talk about what you're preaching is that in the first century to decide to follow Jesus, to decide to become a Christian meant a break with your family, whether you were coming from a pagan Gentile context or a Jewish context. When you said, I'm going to follow Jesus, oftentimes that meant rejection. And so you you had to then join this or rely upon this community of followers of Jesus who, especially like in the city of Antioch, they were a diverse group of people. And I think we lose that in our, our context because to, today to decide to follow Jesus, in some circumstances, I, I think it means um, leaving or being rejected by or, or conflict with your family of origin, but not, I think that's pretty rare. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times, I mean, and you and I are people who were not as children raised in a quote Christian family, which is not a dig at our parents. We had great parents. Just worship was not a part of our daily life. And our, our parents didn't say, Hey, here's what we believe about God. And we really want to share that with you. And our, you know, that we just, we weren't raised to be Christians. And I think it's really interesting because I, I longed for that as a child to share my faith with my family. And I definitely, as a parent, one of the things I really, you know, one of the most precious things that I have that I want my children to inherit is my faith in Jesus and my life with Jesus. And also knowing that I can't, I can't control that. Like I can't pass it down to them like a valued book or you know that that that's just such an interesting thing about what it what it means um just the role of family in in christian life and what's a right and healthy and mature understanding of how you love your family who are with whom you share christian practice and and belief and and with whom you don't and i think one of the things and it's only tuesday but one of the things I, I'm really interested in is, is how much our shaping, how, how much our understanding of family and our expectations about family in, in common Christian life have, un, without our awareness, shaped our understanding of diversity. Like, have, have, like if the cultural understanding of family and the cultural understanding of diversity are opposed, right? Like you're either with your family where everyone's like you or you're in a diverse setting where people are unlike you so they're not your family. Like if these things are diametrically opposed in typical American culture, then what does it mean to be in the body of Christ where family is not only in opposition to diversity but really only in a diverse setting can you uncover and recover the wholeness and fullness of your family. Yeah, part of the challenge for us in our time is that we understand family apart from community. 
Yeah. So it's it's when we when we think of family, we think of home, castle, protection, separate from everyone else around us, right? Instead of our family is um, a Lego piece in a larger community, and um, that community is a diverse one. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also, I mean, <laughs> well, just... and when you know for decades, if not more. Church planters were taught, if you're going to start a new church, look at a map. Where are the people mostly alike? Where are the people moving? Yeah. And you start a church of people who are economically, um, ethnically already alike. And that's the way to grow a church. An affinity group, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what also is interesting is, you know, as much as there are understandings of diversity that I think are are unhelpful or, or a lack of familiarity with healthy, diverse communities. And I, and I would argue that m- most Americans have a paucity, a scarcity of flourishing, diverse communities, right? Like they, they might be in diverse communities where they don't feel safe or welcome or valued, or, or they aren't safe, welcome or valued. It's hard to find models for what a flourishing and healthy, diverse community looks like in any context. I also think it's hard to find models or even imagine or even talk about like what does a flourishing and healthy family look like? Like what is that? Because I'm thinking about, you know, just a lot of the um, models we might see in entertainment are usually explorations of dysfunction. I'm thinking about things we see in the news, like the scandal about people pulling strings to get their children into um, universities and you know that there's this idea of like well when you're in a family you you are you should it's actually it's actually a betrayal if you don't do everything in your power to give your family your in-group an advantage over outsiders right like that's just part of the ways that we can think about what family is or like family means never having to say you're sorry or family means you know even if someone in your family does something wrong you would protect them you would cover for them you would you know so I I think that that is the other part of the issue is we see family as as diversity is antithetical to family and also our concepts of family are not healthy like I don't you know or we have this very hierarchical model of you know, a family is where there's a chain of command that's clear and mm-hmm. certain people are in charge and that's how you find peace, you know, or, you know, a transactional, like you're a parent and so you have children and your children owe you X, Y, and Z. And if they don't do it, then they've betrayed you. Like there's just lots of models that are kind of in the water all around us that I would argue are not at all healthy. And, and ironically, even as Jesus is saying in that room, who are my mother and brothers, I would argue clearly to me, even, especially if we focus on Mary, um, mother of Jesus seems to actually have in my unexpert opinion, a really healthy, like mothering family relationship with Jesus in that she loves him. She, she loves him beyond her understanding of him she you know he's out there doing whatever and and she's there she's with him not controlling him not manipulating him um 
and so I think it's interesting, even as there's sort of this pseudo denial, um, that that it's a really looks like a healthy family system to borrow. Yeah, when window. I think of families in the New Testament, like texts that might um, uh, apply in terms of preaching about families, all of the one anothering passages mm-hmm. uh, in in the New Testament come ima- come to mind: love one another, be kind to one another. And I have to confess, I don't preach those very much. Yeah. Yeah, and and nor do I think a lot of times just in living out my life as a member of a family, we do a lot of, you know, don't do that kind of talk without sort of the, like, hey, here's who we are. Like, here's how we talk. Here's how we, and um, I'm sure I've talked about this. Oh, go ahead. I really love that because now we're, we're talking about um, creating, building, deepening culture. Because right. ultimately, when we talk about our Christian communities, we're talking about living into a culture that is, at the end of the day, the way of Jesus. And the kingdom of and, God. And that takes intentionality. And that is Jesus' definition of family, right? Mm-hmm. Who are my family? Right. Not necessarily limited to the people I share biological, you know, matter with, but people who are part of this common spirit formed culture. And I think, you know, so many people know, um, how your biological family can really be a place of threat or limit. Um, and, and your found family can be the place where people, have unconditional positive regard towards you, have, have, will tell you the truth when you are in danger, will set appropriate limits and also show lots of mercy and grace. And lots of people already understand um, that, that one way of interpreting what Jesus is saying, which is your family is, is really the people with whom you share common values and common life. So anyway, that's... Um, that that is where I want to go on Sunday, and I and I really, you know, we've talked about this before. Multi ethnic and multicultural church is is hard, very. Um, and I think well, what and we've been told if it were easy, everyone would everyone do would do it. But I think one of the things that people that I hear people say a lot is, um, and I see it. You know, people feel more comfortable and intuitively connected two members of the community with whom they share a common cultural background, right? So if you look at, say, a meal gathering at the Grove, you'll often see um, that, you know, white folks will sit at tables and black folks will sit at different tables. And that just sort of naturally and spontaneously happens. And I think part of having an understanding of the vision of God and the truth of who we were created to be and how we are called and equipped to embody the kingdom and community is to sort of lean into, yes, maybe I do feel more comfortable sitting at this table where I understand all the jokes and you know, we can trade stories about how these are the ways my childhood was like your childhood. And it's just easier to relax in that space to say, really, what I want to do is, is practice 
um, the will of God and say, I want to cultivate relationships that are not as easy. They're, they, it's not just like sliding into the groove. And I cultivate them believing and trusting that if this, if God says this is good, then it actually is good. <laughs> like not just this is a test or a trap or a price I have to pay, but like I actually will myself be blessed by investing in this relationship. And that's what I think a lot of people don't understand about diversity, especially I will speak as a white person for white people. Like a lot of white people, I think, assume that the point of diversity is for people of color, is to grant people of color access to spaces or communities that we assume often unconsciously are, air quotes, better. Just wrong and wrong and wrong. Like, the 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 promise of diversity as a kingdom value is that we authentically need one another in order to flourish so i cannot be the person that god created me to be without being in relationship with people that the world would divide me from not because I have gifts and values to impart to whoever is in the category I'd call them, but because um, I am, I have areas of God created lack <laughs> that are meant to be filled by the gifting of folks who are unlike me, either through, you know, experience or, you know, or their gifting. Like that's the, sort of Corinthians 12 idea and so to really lean into like this being a part of a diverse community is not something good I am doing for God but something good God is doing for me yeah as you were speaking um, a place in scripture came to mind uh, Philippians 2 2 uh, the apostle Paul writes then make my joy complete being like-minded having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind. And um, my thinking is that wherever you are on the journey of becoming diverse community, it's okay. Because you never arrive, you're, you're always becoming. So enjoy where you are, right? If you're under the same roof, different tables, you are where you are. But you are becoming something more because we never, um, I, I don't know, I say never, I don't know if we ever get to the place where we are totally of one mind, one heart, one spirit, but we are growing in that direction. Right, and I also think we need to have right expectations, right? Like I think sometimes we are like, well, I've been at this church for three months and I don't really, you know, I feel like, I mean, we are, we are the inheritors of literally centuries of history of, white supremacy and discrimination I mean th that and so to walk in and just be like well once I've been here for two years uh, all divisions will be overcome I mean I think the truth is for me I have a much greater awareness of my unconscious bias and internalized white supremacy now than I ever did before when my significant relationships were mostly with 
other white people, right? Like when I was mostly in relationships with other white people, I could just live under the illusion that I was unlike any, you know, any of those problematic white people. And, and now that I have been blessed and people are so gracious to be interested in being in relationship with me and, and risking relationship with me, I, I am more aware of just thoughts that flit crossed my mind or emotions that I have. And I can notice them and just be like, wow, like that's, those are, those are, those are not in line with my deepest held values. And yet they are real reactions that are coming up inside my spirit. And that wasn't something that I ever experienced when I wasn't in multi-ethnic, multicultural communities because they, because I, I didn't have a context where I would have had those things triggered because I was in very comfortable, mostly all white spaces or in spaces where there might be people of color in the room, but the culture was white culture. And so nobody said or did anything that seemed unfamiliar or, you know, uncustomary to me. Yeah. At the end of the day, I hope um, folks at the Grove will walk away with the knowledge, the certainty that diversity is a biblical issue. Mm -hmm. It's not something that um, you made up just to be making up. It is, it, it, is, it is the heart of God to bring people together into right. one family. And I think to be able to say, like at the Grove, and I'm sure at Derrida, like diversity is not a, like a flashpoint. It's not like people in other Christian spaces might really be feel like that word was a Trojan horse bringing in all kinds of other ideas that would be threatening or, or they would understand as antichrist. Like I don't, I think in our communities, people genuinely understand intellectually that diversity is an authentic expression of the spirit of God and agree with it <laughs> and maybe even believe in it. But then to say like, okay, knowing something, and living something out are two different things. And and knowing something, even desiring something, and then recognizing like, oh, this doesn't come easy or instantly or without cost. So am I still going to value and prioritize this if it means, you know, I have to sit at a table and feel uncomfortable. I have to earn trust with someone that I feel like should already trust me. I have to, you know, apologize for things that harm someone but we're unintentional or I have to put up with someone who you know offends me all the time and I think they should know better and I you know like these these values cost something yeah another hope that I have for people at the Grove and Derrida um, is that for those who are in the majority <coughs> and most of the time uh, that's white people who are in the majority I, I hope that you get some sense of the the work, mm -hmm. the sacrifice that people who are in the minority make to be in certain spaces. Um, because for most of us, we spend Monday through Saturday in spaces where we are already the minority. Mm -hmm. And it's work constantly navigating. 
Am I welcome? Am I not welcome? Was that person just having a bad day and they're irritated or are they racist? That's, that's a lot of mental, emotional, spiritual work. And so for many of us, you, on Sunday morning, you want to be in a space where, where you're not navigating. Right, where you could just exhale. And so to show up in a space where you are the minority on a Sunday morning um, is, I, I hope that those in the majority can see it as the gift that it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm using that word intentionally. It It is a gift because it is a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it takes a lot of work and... You said this a moment ago, and I'll just say it again just to highlight it. I do think that there are too many folks in the majority who see diverse churches as, oh, look how wonderful we are because we let them in our space. Correct. Correct. No, I I think that 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 might not even like you might have to dig down a couple levels to even realize that that thought is in you. And then you might be really shocked buy it but just to sit with it like why how did I how am I so comfortable assuming that what I call God's space is my space Mm -hmm. and that I should get to control it Um, and I do think you know we say at the Grove a lot that it is a it is a sacrifice for everyone at the Grove and for everyone regardless of your ethnic background if you're at the Grove you are choosing to be somewhere hard when you could have chosen somewhere else, that would have been easier, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's true for every single person there. But what I think is different and that you just alluded to is for many white people in our community, church might be the one place that is challenging all week, right? You might feel comfortable in, in your grocery store and comfortable in your workplace and comfortable in your school, and then you go to church and it's challenged, but it feels like a good challenge or a holy challenge or whatever. But for people of color in our community to say, you have not added one place of discomfort to your life, you may have sacrificed the one place of, unco- of unconscious belonging that you knew in order to come and be part of this community. And that's that's just a different, I mean, we all have different burdens that, that we bear um, but I think just an awareness, I think it's really important for people who are in the majority culture in America, so that would be people deemed white, to understand that it's not that it's not a sacrifice for white people or a cost for white people to be in, in the community, because it is and it does, but it's not the same as the cost um, that that others in that community might be bearing that we might just presume and not even notice. And... Um, and I, I think also your other point is the same, that like to the extent that white people sometimes at the Grove and are like, and I mean, I hear people say this, like, do you know, do people not like me because I'm white? Do people not trust me because I'm white? Will anybody ever really want to have a deep, authentic relationship with me because I'm white? Like, can I risk sharing when I feel hurt because I'm white? I'm like, that's all real. And, and please understand that that perhaps is a little bit like what it feels like to be a person of color in other spaces all the time. And I think I'm not celebrating that discomfort. I'm saying it's, it is part of the burden of living in a broken world. And I think it's, it's healthy 
for people deemed white to understand what that feels like and both to seek real reconciliation and healing and spiritual growth in in our community, in, like in the Grove or in the community, and also to walk out into the larger community with an awareness of how might some people in this room be feeling and what can I do to be a place of peace, to be a place of acceptance, to be an ally or an advocate in this space. Yeah, I am uh, reminded of my friendship uh, with my um, dear friend and uh, colleague, um, Jeannie Bates, who lives in Omaha, Nebraska. We went to seminary together, and um, uh, she's white. Um, I went to seminary right out of college. Uh, she was second career, um, uh, a second career student. Let's see, at the time, I guess I would have been like 21, and I think she was 40 when we met. And I remember we were... Um, we were in Hebrew class, very first, you know, class you take at Louisville Seminary, and um, it's one of those intensive summer classes, and uh, during a break, she turned around, and she said, hi, my name is Jeannie, I'm from Nebraska, we should be friends, and <laughs> I'm thinking, white lady, no, what, I know, what, wait, but we, we, we became friends, but early on in our friendship, there was, there was, um, there was some tension uh, because I was very, I had a, a, a certain kind of wall there, uh, partly because I'm an introvert, but partly because um, I'm, I'm in this, you know, majority white space. I'm struggling with the curriculum, professors, you know, lots of things going on. And here's this person wanting to be my friend and um, genuinely, sincerely, in a deep and heartfelt way, wanting to get to know me. And there was resistance on my part. And it took a while for me to see the sincerity and to have a trust um, so that we can now, 27, mm -hmm. 8, whatever years later, we can talk about some really hard things only because we've been friends for so long mm -hmm. and, and it I, just yeah. takes time and that's i think that's my point if you are thinking diversity multi-ethnic relationships are you know add hot water and stir you are mistaken and so for those white members at the grove who are asking will i ever will i ever will i ever get to the place where yes but it's it's a it's a journey you, you don't have to push it in enjoy where you are on well, the way to where you're going. Right. And I think the reality is like, look, you can't walk up to someone and, and I don't think this is what Jeannie did. I don't think this is what Jeannie did, but I think cuz I love Jeannie. She's, she's great. So great. <laughs> and she listens to this podcast and sends encouraging notes to the Grove all the time and it just it, they always show up at exactly the right moment and I'm um but but I think that a lot of times white people can enter into a space where diversity is centered and then they're there because they have recognized oh gosh I want my life to look different than it does I, I want to have different kinds of friendships I want to have different kinds of connections and then you walk up to someone and they're like let's be friends and there's almost this sense of like this demand like you have to be my friend and and the challenge of that is 
it, it can come off as kind of you know, like colonization, like you owe me friendship, right? Like the reality is friendship is, you know, you can't demand it of someone. You can build it, um, but, but it has to be mutuality. And I think, um, you know, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And I really do think that the Holy Spirit, you know, like friendship is a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a place. So I, I just think that's how the Lord moves and shows up. And I trust the Lord to do it. But I also think each one of us has to understand that we're not entitled to anyone's friendship. And that when someone gives us friendship or offers us friendship, it's a gift and we can receive it with joy and we can treasure it and we can honor it and recognize that just like if some, if I give you a gift, you can't be like, well, I wanted a bigger <laughs> gift. I mean, that's rude. right? I mean, you can just like, I think it's important to be able to say it is, it is a gift and it is pure grace to have any friendship. I can long for more. I can work to cultivate the conditions wherein friendship can grow, but I'm not entitled to anyone's friendship ever. And so I can't demand it and I can't feel like I've been an injustice has perpetrated, been perpetrated against me if a person doesn't want to be my friend. Because the reality is there's just a lot that's going on in people's interior world that we can't know and we just assume, oh, this person would be blessed by a friendship with me. And that just might not be the case. Well, and they may not have, it may be as simple as not having room in their lives. Right. You just don't have the capacity, right? right? I, I mean, I, yes. I have very few friends. Right. And that's just because I'm introverted and I like my space. And so I, I you know, just mm -hmm. a few, few folks. Other people have... Um, a greater capacity for friendship than I do. But it's funny that you um, tell that story about you and Jeannie because I I have a, um, it's interesting, I, I had a friend in seminary um, who was a black man and, and we were friends, casual friends, mm -hmm. but friends for, for the entire time. And we were part of a clergy um, group. He's not a part of it any longer. He's a professor now. Um, but, um, and I remember like we were talking and this clergy group was founded intentionally to be um, diverse racially and in terms of spiritual tradition and in terms of gender and um we were and, and I think he had actually invited me into it so that's how I became a, a member of that group of friends and um we were talking at a retreat just sort of late one night about lots of things and and he said to me like I you know I decided I wanted to be friends with you because I wanted white friends and I remember not saying but internally feeling very offended like because I think I had not really done very much deep work about what it meant to be a white person. Like I still had a lot of discomfort. I mean, I was already very much had chosen, you know, knew I wanted to be in diverse communities. Like I, I understood things theoretically and intellectually, but I hadn't done, I mean, I was very young. And, and I think I was just offended to be seen as white by this mm. person um, because, you know, I didn't, I wanted to be liked for myself. Not, I mean, you know, it's just a very, like, it just is a betray. It, it just reveals just sort of what a third rail it is to yeah. even talk about race. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I mean, again, like I know that I didn't say anything at the time, or maybe I did. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I said anything at the time, but I I just remember being sincerely hurt. Um, I, and and really, I, I you know I don't know I I felt profiled like I don't know what it was but I just um, <laughs> that's so, so funny I think that that's but I do think um, and we've talked about this before that part of the challenge for white people is that there's no positive culture of ethnic identity that is white right like. To, to say, like, if you talk about white culture or white identity, what's going to come to mind is white supremacy, white power, white nationalism. So it's hard as opposed to... Well, well that's the privilege. Correct. Right? I mean, because a, yeah. a white person can, can, can do both. A white person can say, on the one hand, I'm Italian, I'm French, I'm Irish. And then also say, I'm white, but don't call me white. Right. It's right. A, you, you, you've got you've got choices. Well, I think that the challenge and it is privilege. I'm not arguing otherwise. I think the dominant culture we don't see as white culture. We see it as just normalcy. And then when something is labeled white, it is usually an expression of violence or manifest injustice. And so you know we don't we it's hard to cultivate an understanding of whiteness that you can claim as a white person without it being destructive to other people groups and i think that's just larger work that the white community needs to do to say what yeah, I, and and i think that is part of the work that i would encourage white people to organize around cuz i would I would be an advocate for losing that language. I would be an advocate because my understanding of, especially the history of this country, um, both history in terms of sociology, we got the term white uh, at a time when um, immigrants from Eastern Europe were coming here and they were being discriminated against. And so um, they were trying to decide how they could fit in with, um, those from um, England and, and France, right? Um, and, and so they said, oh, skin, we're, we are white like you. So mm -hmm. we're not like those Africans. And so the whole idea of whiteness was a way for those Eastern Europeans who were more olive complexion, of, of more olive complexion and different language uh, to fit in. And so I think um, it would be a positive thing to begin to dismantle that. And, and and to begin to think of folks as, oh, I am of Irish descent, of French or German descent. Well, but also, and again, these are not original thoughts to me at all. And the concept of dismantling whiteness, I think, is happening in a lot of academic spaces, but it isn't trickling down enough Correct. into yes. the yes. lived experience of people. Because the challenge is, for someone like me, well, there's no ethnic identity that I can claim to like it's my kids ask all the time are we Irish I'm like we're not Irish and like, but our last name is Murphy I'm like no one in your family has lived in Ireland for generations like in no meaningful way you guys need to do 21 Irish. and me 
But I, but I mean, I, even, even if that were to happen, like the reality yeah. is the cultural identity of me and my children is white American. Mm-hmm. And so how can we understand, create, and celebrate a white American ethnic identity that acknowledges the reality of the past, works to meaningfully, you know, redeem and atone, and also a way that people can say I'm white without that being threatening language, without it being heard as an insult, mm-hmm. right? Like what's a way to create a cultural identity that isn't um, centering whiteness? I recognize the irony. <laughs> I recognize the irony. Uh, so this, I mean. Well, you're going to do some heavy lifting in your preaching this well, Sunday. Not all of that. What are you preaching about on Sunday? Well, um, this will be the second week or third week, maybe. I've been in, in the lectionary. For those who are not familiar with the lectionary, it's a, a series of readings each Sunday of the year, not just in the Presbyterian Church, but in various denominations. There's a reading from the Old Testament, from one from the Psalms, let's see, one from the Gospels, and one from the letters of Paul. Um, last week, um, I was in the Gospel of Mark. That's the lectionary gospel reading um, right now. And um, this week is also Mark chapter 1. And um, let's see, Jesus uh, is in Capernaum, and he goes to the house of Simon Peter where he heals uh, Simon's mother-in-law. And then uh, crowds of people show up with sick people and uh, demon-possessed people, and Jesus heals them and casts out demons. And then he goes to a solitary place to pray. And the disciples find him, and Jesus said to them, it's time to leave here. I've got to preach in other places. And I think he even named a place. He said, I need to go there and preach. And I read that text last night, and what got my attention was the word preach, because uh, Jesus says it twice mm-hmm. in the text. And when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as teacher, as healer, but not really as preacher. And that got my attention because in our society right now, the word preach is not a positive word. If you want to give a negative review of a movie or a book, you'll say it was preachy. If you want to um, refer to someone's uh, lecture to you in a negative way, say, oh, they preached at me. And so the word preach is my, not a my positive My editor word. keeps saying this sounds like a sermon. This yeah, sounds it, like a yeah, sermon. You're so preaching it. People you're pre- are like, you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> for people who, you know, we do this for a living, we preach for a living, that makes me feel some kind of way. So um, that part of the text got my attention. Um, and so I've just been thinking about, okay, so what? what is preaching? And preaching is... Is is simply it's not it's not it's not teaching it's not uh, it's not a motivational speech it's not on the other end of the spectrum it's not um, uh, pounding uh, a lectern with with you know judgment and hellfire preaching in the biblical sense is to announce good news and so Jesus says I got to go announce good news in other places and I think in the text he says. This is why I came, to announce good news. And when you read the Gospel of Mark, you know, Mark moves quickly. There's no birth narrative. It just jumps in. As a matter of fact, the, the 
gospel begins, the beginning of, good, mm. of the good news of Jesus Christ, and you get John the Baptist, you get Jesus' baptism, and then uh, after Jesus uh, 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 is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he begins his public ministry, and he begins by announcing the kingdom of God has come near. And I think that that's the that's the heart of his preaching. And so I'm just sitting with this idea of what what does it look like for us to announce the nearness of the kingdom? Uh, I think Jesus ministry of healing and exorcism is all about demonstrating the reality of this thing that he's he's preaching. So what does it mean for us as the church? And um, I have in my head and. I don't know if I'm going to do this, but I think I might, um, a, a, a Venn diagram, and the first, well, a series of them, and the first one, two circles, and they are apart, one labeled uh, heaven, the other earth, and that's usually how we conceive the cosmos. Earth is over here, heaven is over there, and the goal, we think, of Christianity is to um, be good enough, faithful enough, whatever enough, that when we die, we get to jet over to the heaven space. Um, but that's not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that it's God's desire that heaven and earth be one. And so in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what we have is a, it, there, there's this meeting space. There's this, this place in the, in the middle where these two circles start to meet, heaven and earth. And that is the, that's the, that's the Christian space. That's the space of if you have faith in Jesus, in some sense, even now, you are, uh, while your feet are planted on this earth, you are living within the realm of heaven. If anyone is in Christ, um, we usually translate that, they are a new creation, but the text literally says in Greek, if anyone is in Christ, new, new creation, creation, right? Yeah. And ultimately, last diagram, it's both circles on top of each other. So heaven and earth are, are one, and that is... Revelation 21, um, new heaven and new earth. And so I'm trying to get my head around what, what does it look like for us in this in-between time of Jesus' first and second coming to live in this in-between space of <laughs> on, on this earth, yet the kingdom has drawn near, and should we be doing something different? Yeah, I think that... It, it struck me, uh, I am so grateful to the Grove because that was the first community where I became, you know, a weekly preacher. And so um, <laughs> it's the joy of, it's the joy of my life. And I, uh, but I realized early, like a couple years in, that my sermons were mostly about what I was against. So, so like this is happening in the world and the gospels, like this is wrong and this shouldn't be, and that shouldn't be. And so it was mostly a sermon about this is happening and it shouldn't be. And I realized that it is much, much, much more difficult to make a compelling case about what you're for and and even honestly to imagine that i mean there's some necessity to to announce the truth about what passes as normal or good that's neither right but 
to be preaching, you can't end there. You have to move to what is happening in the realm of God, you know, what what will be, like that's the good news, right? And so that's what the prophets do, right? They'll say, you know, X is happening and Y is happening and Z is happening and that won't stand, but here are the promises of God. And I think, you know, that's the challenging thing because to to say as a preacher, we're against this, I mean, you can just build a community very easily on the basis of what you're against. And it's much more it's much more difficult to build a community based on common values and what you're for. And even things like even a lot of things that are expressed as positive in our culture are really in, in actuality not. So we can say like, well, we're for we're pro-life, but what that really looks like is being against abortion. Or we can say we're we're pro democracy but what that really looks like is let's stop that evil party of people who want to take away people's rights right and so to to really to be a preacher and a herald of the good news is to be able to proclaim as true that which is becoming and say you know this is worth this is true and this is worth believing in um and it is both already and not yet in our midst. And I think as preachers, that's so hard. And for the majority of the history of preaching, it's been about what you're against. Like in essence, the preacher is standing up in front of people wagging their fingers because it's easy to create belonging. It's easier to control people with threats about do this or else. And to announce the sheer astonishing unbelievable goodness of what God is doing it you know and to name that as this is what God is doing it does not require your permission your assent or even your participation like you are invited to participate but this is not up to you like that kind of glory and freedom is so unfamiliar to us and it's so non-transactional that I think we really you know, we think like, no, 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 we need to use this moment more effectively to, to get something done. So that can be, you know, to tell people think like this, act like this, behave like this, as opposed to what Jesus was doing, which is saying like, hey, the time is now, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Like Jesus was there to do a thing. He really wasn't he was inviting people in, but he wasn't there to gather a critical mass. He wasn't there to get people to agree. He, he was there to open eyes and ears, um, but it was not, you know, he didn't need people. And, um, and I think too often in the preaching moment, we're trying to get people to join the church or get people to vote in a specific way or get people to support the institution or get people to participate in a ministry as opposed to saying, this is the good news of the gospel and it is, it is complete and it is enough. And I trust, I'm announcing the power of God, not using the things of God in my own power for my own ends. Okay, and in the ministry of Jesus, one of the things that he announces by his action is that evil, death, injustice, all of those things are on the way out. Mm -hmm. 
in spite of what we see all around us. All right, last week, um, the, the text was Jesus cast out a, a, a demon out of a man in the synagogue. And, and one of the things I, I read about was, you know, th- th- there were many exorcists in, in that day, uh, both Jewish and pagan. But what they had in common was that they, they all went through these, like, long rituals to try to make something happen. And for Jesus to simply say, be quiet, come out of him, people were astonished. They said, wait, how, wh- what kind of authority is this? So Jesus' ministry of healing and casting out demons is part of his announcement, his preaching, uh, preaching through action. Oh, that all of those things really are truly on the way out, and we are invited to anticipate, even now, live in this this kingdom of love and peace and justice and hope and, and all good things. Well, and to your point, like, if Jesus needed so few words to compel the forces that were against the kingdom, then, then how... How even fewer words does Jesus need? I mean, Jesus does not have to compel God to do anything because Jesus is fully um, centered and subsumed in the will of God. So I think, you know, what would it look like for us as preachers to believe the good news of the gospel and believe it is enough and have the confidence that the word of God is alive and full of power and needs no, needs nothing like no hysteronics, no embellishment, no, you know, exciting stories or pithy illustrations. Just that like, look, I am, I'm only here to do sort of the simplest, least complicated thing there is, which is to say, this is what God is doing. We have a beloved person in our community, uh, Miss Cece, who um, over the Christmas holiday was um, diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer. And I was meeting with her some days ago, and I asked her, how can I be a good friend and pastor to you in this season? And um, she said, I just want you to remind me of what I already know. Yeah. Okay, that, that was powerful. Um, and that, that is, um, that, that's a lesson for me as a preacher when I stand before God's people on Sunday. For some, it might be new news, but for others, there is just great power in reminding them of what they already know. And that is the kingdom has come near in the person of Jesus. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think that it's also, there's knowing and then there's knowing, right? Mm -hmm. There's, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's having a sort of a cultural intellect. I mean, we're just always growing deeper and deeper into the truth and there's no shame in that. Um, But I think for us as preachers, I I mean, well, I'll speak for myself as a preacher. I know a lot of times I, I come to the text or, or the preaching moment with a, you know, with just a certain you know, fullness of self, anxiety, awareness of, you know, like, oh, there's a, there's a challenge in the congregation or an opportunity or a problem. And this is going to 
you know, this moment could functionally fix it or solve it or what, you know, instead of, you know, our job as servant leaders, preachers and pastors is to, is to live out of our belief that God is sufficient. God alone is enough. And we are standing there saying, you know, this is, there's no, there's no anxiety. There's no challenge in this task or in this moment because we know a truth that is beyond our human concept or understanding. And, and I do think, you know, and this is where it's helpful being married to who I'm married to, like preachers need to be people of faith, right? Like we need to stand up to the pulpit, not trusting in our knowledge or our preparation or our giftedness, Mm -hmm. but to really stand up in the pulpit in our faith that God is who Jesus and scripture and our life with the Holy Spirit have revealed God to be and to stand there grounded in that and then sort of vulnerable and surrendered to like, God, if, if you are who you say you are, there's no, <laughs> there's nothing at stake here. And if you're not, there's no reason worrying about any of this anyway. <laughs> so... Well, well this has been good, um, just mm-hmm. talking about what we're preaching, because it's been a while. We, we, every, every week, it seems, we run out of time. Yeah, we run out of time, <laughs> and so this has been great. Um, well, thank you all for listening, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derrida Presbyterian Woo-hoo. Church, you can go to the website, which is, do you realize you do that every week? You make that little like, that weird owl week. sound every week. You sure <laughs> do. Owl. You sure do. You may, I'm not going to mock it, but you can go back and listen to it. Um, it's like you have a little like <laughs> logo symbol, like a, anyway. Um, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derrida Presbyterian Church, you could worship with them at. I know you see, you're like Pavlov's dogs. You try to do it. You could worship with them at eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning. You could check out the Derrida Church podcast on the Podbean website, or go to the YouTube page, um, or you could go to the website, which is DerridaChurch.com. Um, you can look for the um, the logo, which is the it's a stained glass window with a descending dove, and um, you should do that. I was going to say something else, but it's just lost. And if oh. you want to find out more about the Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out the um, YouTube channel or the um, podcast for. Recent messages, um, our logo is a green tree with roots, which there's a lot of groves out there. So, And if you, uh, you can worship with us at uh, 10 o'clock. So thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>